This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. You'll remember last year, New York Times opinion editor and columnist Barry Weiss sent shockwaves through journalistic circles and beyond when she resigned her post through a letter that made some critical points about the decline of American journalism. She said that the lessons following the election of Donald Trump should have been about the importance of understanding other Americans, the necessity of resisting tribalism and the centrality of the free exchange of ideas to a democratic society. Instead, she wrote, a new consensus has emerged in the press The truth isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everyone else. And Weiss also added, the paper of record is more and more the record of those living in a distant galaxy, one whose concerns are profoundly removed from the lives of most people. Well, she saw the problem clearly, and my next guest also sees the problems within our woke media and explains how journalism got to this point in her new book, Bacha Angar Sark is the deputy opinion editor at Newsweek and author of the new book called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Bacha, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. Well, I appreciate your book very much because I was a newspaper woman myself and I worked in newsrooms for a number of years as a reporter and an editor. And I have to say, I have wondered this for years. We were taught journalists are supposed to be objective and fair and report both sides of a story. Now it seems being woke is a requirement, a job description, as it were, to be a journalist, which is not, I would say, universally true necessarily. But what happened to journalism as it's supposed to be executed out in the public square on behalf of the readers? So the argument I make in my book is that this looks like it's about race, but actually it's about class. What happened to journalism was over the course of the 20th century, journalists went from being basically working class. It was a blue collar trade. And now today, journalists are part of the American elite. So if you think back to 1937, they did a survey of all of the highest ranking journalists in America, the Washington cohort. Less than half of them had a college degree, and a lot of them hadn't even gone to high school. Fast forward to today, in 2015, they did another survey. They found that 92% of journalists had a college degree now compared to just 36% of Americans, right? right? And it's not just that they have a college degree. They increasingly come from the absolute elite of universities. The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and NPR only take interns from the top 1% of universities. And they're also more affluent, you know? Journalism used to be a job that paid sort of like being a cop. Today, journalists, they're in the top 10%. And what I argue in my book is that as journalists became much more coastal, much more highly educated, much more liberal, and much more 
affluent, they became woke. They brought these very extreme ideas from the university into the newsroom with them. And now they are essentially policing anybody who disagrees out of their newsroom. Yeah, you're right about that. What was it that happened? I mean, I can think of a few significant points that occurred over the years that brought journalism to where it is right now. And you talk about a lot of this in your book, but can you trace it for us a little bit how this shift took place from having people who were basically more more blue collar working in newsrooms to these elitists who seem to dominate the profession now? So there were a number of factors. Um, one of them was, for example, the advent of television. Okay. So before TV, you know, most Americans got their news from newspapers. In 1964, that was the first year that the majority of Americans said they were getting their news from television. Now, if you're getting your news from TV, you're getting a very immediate version of the news, right? You're getting moving pictures, you're getting audio, right? So newspapers felt like they had to bring something new to the table. So that was when they started to shift from being descriptive to being more interpretive, right? Mm -hmm. They couldn't just bring you the news because you could get it better from TV. They had to interpret it for you, which meant that you had to be able to write and you had to be able to write long paragraphs and interpretive paragraphs. So they started selecting for people with a college degree. And when people with a college degree started becoming journalists, it was no, you know, they they started selecting for more people, you know, higher degree, higher caliber, right? Because there's always that's how markets work. Um, and then but what really, really jump started this was um, all the president's men, right, was yes. um, Woodward and Bernstein being immortalized in Hollywood. Suddenly, journalism went from being this muckraking, you know, job to being something that had a lot of glamour associated with it, right? They brought down this very unpopular president. They were represented by these, like, sex pots in this movie, right? <laughs> yes. And suddenly, people who, like, at Harvard, who were working on the Harvard Crimson, the Harvard newspaper, People, you know, like like who who like JFK, he worked at, at the Harvard Crimson, but he would never have dreamed of becoming a journalist, right? It wasn't a high-class, high-caliber job. He <laughs> went on, you know, into politics. Suddenly, after that movie came out, those kinds of people, right, from from the elites, they really started to see journalism as a worthy, worthy profession, worthy of their talents. And then, of course, as more and more, you know, elite people started becoming journalists, more elite people started applying and the profession got even more and more elite. But really, the digital age was what sort of put this on steroids. Hmm. So that, you know, the Internet really, it it just destroyed local news. Local news was really the last place where you could really find, you know, people who didn't have a college degree doing the job and teaching the younger generation today, because most 75 percent of journalism jobs are on the coast. You know, they're they're increasingly peopled by only liberals and every generation is more and more extreme in its views, you know, to where right now the reason I I use the word woke, it's, it's a word from sociologists, because what they've noticed is that white liberals now, their views on race are further to the left than black Americans and Latino Americans. Mm. So that and that those are the people who you're now seeing um, dominating American newsrooms. Well, you're right on the money, I think, about everything you just said. And one of the points you made about the Watergate era, I think, is so significant because I have read and I experienced this, too. The generation that was very much influenced by all the president's men, Woodward and Bernstein and that era, 
that led, did it not, to a lot of people going into journalism because they wanted to be activists. They wanted to be able to have that kind of power. You know, because you think about journalism, largely you would have your byline there, but a lot of people would never pay attention to the byline. All of a sudden, it seemed like journalists could be stars, and that got a lot of people into the profession, driving out, it would seem, a lot of other people from a blue-collar background who might not be of that ilk. Do you see that trend when you were looking at all the evidence leading up to the era we're in now? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, journalists have always been slightly more liberal than Americans at large, less religious, uh, you know, more likely to be pro-choice and pro-life and so forth. But, you know, when most of the newspapers were, you know, in the heartland across the country, were in, you know, small American towns that had one newspaper, right, you would have the the journalists would be more liberal. They would always have this pro-little guy outlet outlook, but their boss would be you know, a a conservative, their boss would be a Republican or the owner of a corporation or both, right? So they would be pulling everything back to the center because if you veered too far to the left or too far to the right, you would sacrifice 50% of your readers. And of course, that's just no longer the case anymore. You know, exactly like you said, journalists go into this to make a, a big name for themselves. And it's really, they have been benefiting from a class divide in America skyrocketing inequality. Um, you know, our economy is working really well for people in knowledge industry jobs and people who have that elite education. And that's where you're seeing a lot of the why, why journalists, you know, increasingly are talking about things like race, because they don't want to talk about the class divide that they have benefited from. Mm. So these media elites, as you point out, now believe the only inequality that matters is racial inequality. That's what it's boiled down to now. Yeah, and I think that that's a real cop-out. I mean, of course, there are still areas where we struggle with racism in America, of course, right? You know, for example, police brutality is something that impacts black Americans disproportionately. That's a real emergency. You know, we should all be talking about that. Mass incarceration is a real problem. We should all be talking about it. But what I like to say is, you know, when President Trump pushed the First Step Act through, right, and released 5,000 black men from prison, He wasn't being woke. He was being a good American. You know, when Senator Tim Scott wrote a police reform bill, that wasn't being woke. That was being a good American of conscience. Those are important issues. It's woke when you say we're going to defund the police, which is something that 81 percent of black Americans oppose. Right. Like that's wokeness. It's when rich white liberals show up and start pushing far left academic university cooked up nonsense ideas about race and oppression in order to distract from the real inequality, which is about income inequality and class. Yeah, I want to pick up on this when we come back from the break. Bacha Angar Sargon with us. We'll be back. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Esther is 17 years old and part of the Maasai tribe in Kenya, Africa. Like many of her age and gender, Esther was subjected to practices not taught in the Bible. One is arranged marriage, where a woman is forced to marry someone she doesn't know. The other is female circumcision, done out of superstitious belief with no known health benefit. Esther lived with bitter unforgiveness until a Bible League volunteer introduced her to Jesus. Now she's led her husband to Christ, and she's seen 60 young women come to embrace the hope of the gospel. But Bibles are scarce in this part of Kenya. So please join Bible 
colleague in sending God's Word to Bibleist believers in Africa and around the world for only $5. 20 Bibles costs $100. Make your most generous gift by calling 800 Yes Word, 800 Y E S W O R D. That's 800 937 9673, or there's a Bible League banner to click at janetmefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom, thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. And now through a match, your gift is doubled. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, if you want to understand the woke media, this is a great book to read. It's called Bad News by Bacha Angar Sargon. She is the deputy opinion editor at Newsweek. And we were discussing this problem of wokeness in the media, how we got here, and this point that you're making, Bacha, in your book that wokeness in the media is more about class than it is about race. You know, when we're talking about what's going on with these white elite liberals, uh, by and large, going further to the left than even a lot of black Americans who are their readers might go, how is this benefiting them? Is, Is this increasing their circulation numbers or is this just virtue signaling, by and large, for their friends on Twitter? That's a great question. That's actually the question I thought I went out, you know, I wanted to answer when I was writing this book was, you know, I know that black Americans are not woke. You know, I know that Latino Americans are not woke. I know that this is, you know, that most of the liberals I know are not woke, that no working class Americans, no matter who they vote for, are woke. So how, how did it happen that not just some liberal outlets turned woke, but all of them turned woke, right? Where did the market come from? When, you know, the masses of Americans like are totally not into this, how is it that every one of these businesses that is in it to make a profit is doing the same thing? Right. That was the question that I wanted to answer. And what I found was that, you know, with digital media, what happened with the Internet when all these big legacy publications went digital, like the New York Times and, you know, Washington Post and uh, NPR and, and The Atlantic and Vox and the New Republic, all these outlets that used to have each have their own um, audience that they were catering to with their own house style and their own perspective. What happened with digital media is that everyone is now going for the same six, seven, eight million highly educated, affluent coastal liberals. They're all going for that same audience. And they can now because everything is nationalized. Right. And because digital media you can you you know everything about the reader. You know where they're coming to you from. You know what words make them click. You know what words make them stay on the page. Like I can tell you, Janet, someone who works in digital media, I know exactly how long people are. Every single reader is staying on an article. Hmm. I know what words are going to make them close that browser. I know how much money my readers make. We know everything about them. And so and and and, and what happened was all of these publications they switched from measuring success in terms of mass circulation 
to measuring success in terms of engagement. Engagement Ugh. means how many times you come, who, how many times people comment on your article on Facebook, how many times they share it on Twitter, how many times it gets impressions online, and that's what you're now selling to advertisers. And basically, when you measure success in terms of engagement, you're always going to be catering to the most extreme because the most extreme people are always going to be the most engaged, right? Right, right. That's crazy. And another problem now that really bugs me every time I see this, it was so ingrained into us in journalism school that your opinion doesn't matter. Unless you're writing an opinion piece and that's your job or you're a columnist, your opinion is to not even be discerned by the reader who's reading what you're reporting on. Your job is to get side A and side B if it's something controversial and tell what's going on and do the public service of actually reporting the news. Now you have journalists going out on Twitter and making it as clear as day where they stand on every single issue, especially when it comes to wokeness. Does that not compromise the entire enterprise of journalism? Why even stay in business? You're not a journalist anymore. If you're going to be doing that, you're violating the ethics. You know, that's why I wrote this book. I, I got so sick of the sneering and the smearing of people that the liberal elites don't agree with. And I say that as someone who's coming to this from the left. Yep. I just could not understand how my fellow lefties, they were justifying sneering at working class Americans, sneering at the people who, who had lost by every metric that they had won by, right? Mm. You're sitting on CNN, you're worth millions of dollars, and you're calling every single person who voted for Donald Trump racist? He won all the people, the vast majority of people without a college degree. And in the second election, he won huge numbers of black and Latino Americans, working class people, you know? You're sitting there sneering at them. They use race to justify that, the smearing of the faithful, like just the disgusting way that people in these liberal enclaves, these elite enclaves who are affluent, right, who are living well, justifying their contempt for people who are struggling, people who are committing deaths of despair and suicide because they no longer see themselves as an integral part of American society. That's why I wrote this book, you know? Yeah, you're right about that. Well, how is this helping them, though? Because they they, I know that they're basically catering, like you mentioned before, to their elitist friends and the same several million people who are in that kind of upper class sector. But is there some point at which this is going to backfire on them spectacularly at the voting booth? Because you see what happened just recently in Virginia and these school boards where the parents are showing up and they're so angry about the wokeness in the schools. You can only deride them, it would seem, and insult them so long before they will turn on you, too and say, I want nothing to do with the New York Times. I don't care about the Washington Post. And and the corporate ownership part of it, it seems also is part of the equation. I realize that's kind of a two-pronged question there. But what about those two angles? What, What about the working class really, at the end of the day, being important for them? Do they care about them at all? And will this turn in another direction, do you think? So the history of 20th century journalism is the history of the abandonment of the working class. It started with the New York Times, you know, in 1896. And then, um, you know, it really, there were sort of two models of journalism. I start the book with the populist model of people really going for that mass circulation of working class readers. 
And then the New York Times model, which was all about catering to the elites and the aspirational elites. And now the New York Times model is just totally one in the mainstream liberal media. You still see conservative media catering to the working class. You know, I, 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 I can tell you, as an opinion editor, I have Fox News on one screen and CNN on another screen every single day, all day long. And the difference between them is not about race and it's not about politics. It's about class. It's yeah. about whether they're picturing a viewer who has a college degree. That's it. You, so you're asking why it's profitable. So for starters, I mean, the economy has just, you know, naturally started to reward um, knowledge industry jobs. And so journalists are more affluent. The market has just rewarded them for the way that it's rewarded college professors and other and, 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 you know, coders and people who are in these jobs, you know, these meritocratic jobs, right, that require an elite education. And they've come to look down on people who don't have that. Our economy just does not work for the working class anymore, is my view, because I'm, right. you know, sort of a socialist. And I think that the government should be working for the working class. It's, you know, it, much in the way that I think President Trump's economy was working for the working class in ways that are, were quasi-socialist as well. So, and, and but how is it profitable? Because if you can convince your advertisers that your readers are all affluent, right, you're, you can charge more for ads. Mm-hmm. You know, you can. So, so and, and the subscription base, the subscription model that The New York Times and others are using, if you're getting these affluent liberals to come to you expecting a certain kind of thing. Right. And they're willing to pay a premium price for that because they feel flattered by what they read in your pages, you're always going to double down on that, right? You're always right. going to cater to them. So that's what you're seeing with the Kyle Rittenhouse coverage. It's what you're seeing with the lack of coverage of inflation. It's what you're seeing with the Young King coverage, which was just, they were basically like, oh, all these people who voted for him are white supremacists. <laughs> Not because it's true, but because that's what affluent white liberals want to read in the New York Times, right? Like that's yes. the view that they're, they've come to expect. And, and what I would say to conservatives is, you know, you have a real opportunity here. You know, you have an opportunity to, to just be normal. You know, like if, <laughs> if the Republican Party would just not like do the, the, the owning the lib stuff, right? If they would just not lean into the, the same thing of, you know, the anti-wokeness from the right, which is just a mirror image of wokeness on the left and just respect working class people show up in the black community, explain to them that, you know, school choice is in their best interest. Like, Spend the time to cultivate those relationships. Spend the time to develop an agenda that grants dignity to working class Americans. I really feel like it could be it could be huge. Like that's that's what I want to see. Well, right. And when you're dividing the country in this way by saying whites, you know, benefit from this and that and they're supremacists and they're all racists. And even if they deny it, it it doesn't make any difference. You can never win. And and I think there's that component, too. But it is about class. I think you're really right in your premise here that it really is about class more than it is about race. What do you think the future holds, though, Bacha? Do you think that there is a way to turn things around in journalism? You're, You're working at Newsweek. Obviously, there are other people who are like-minded in journalistic circles, although it is frustrating when you're thinking the way you do in a woke culture, I guess. What what do you think can be done to save journalism, if anything? You know, there was a new Pew study that came out last week, and only 6% of Americans identify as progressives. Hmm. And only 6% of Black Americans identify as as progressive, right? Like, 
it, it, the, the whole thing is a it's a house of cards. It's just a house of cards, Janet, and it's going to come down. I mean, there's. I think Americans are too smart for this. I, I think there's a huge consumer boycott of the news happening right now. And, you know, the most important thing we can do is relearn what it means to be an American, to love and respect our fellow Americans who disagree with us, and not let people make money off of making us hate our fellow Americans. That's, that's, that's how we resist this. Good. I think that's important. Do you see things like the resignation of Barry Weiss and those kinds of moments being important as kind of a career? Director toward what's going on in the newsrooms. Do you think that has much of an effect when those kinds of things happen? Well, I think, you know, an even better corrective is, you know, CNN inviting me on to talk about yes. my book, right? Like, they, you know, that. inviting me into the... <laughs> that was great. That was great. I, I, I think people are sick of this. I think we're seeing, we're going to see a shift, um, you know, back to, back to, to a more normal way of talking about these things. And hopefully, you know, having people talk about class more, which is really what I want to see. Yeah, I do too. But although Brian Stelter, I'm not really sure he'll invite you back after you made so much sense. <laughs> I'm not really sure how that's going to work in the long run. But I, I think you're, I, I think that was great that you went though, because you're reaching an audience that you might not have reached otherwise. And that's fantastic. Yeah. I think that's great. And, you know, it really comes down to the fact that America is such a great nation because we are different from one another. And yet we're e pluribus unum. At least that's how we used to be. And we need to be that way again. And wokeness just doesn't do the job. This is just such a good read. The name of the book is Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy by Bacha Ungar. Sargon from Newsweek. So good to talk to you, Bacha. Keep up the good work. I really enjoyed your book. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Take care. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. How much impact did the pandemic lockdowns and subsequent ramifications have on the suicide rate in America last year? Well, recent CDC data for 2020 shows an alarming increase in the suicide rates for all groups of younger Americans between the ages of 10 and 34. The rate of suicide went up 5% in 2020 among 25 to 34 year olds. This is absolutely tragic and horrifying to consider that anybody would consider or care out a suicide, but it is especially horrendous to see this trend among young people who have their whole lives ahead of them. If you know someone who is considering suicide, the question is, what do you do about it? And how can we give suicidal people the hope that comes only through Jesus Christ? Author and speaker, Dr. Gregory Jantz joins us today to talk about it. He is the founder of The Center, A Place of Hope, and his new book is So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. Greg, it's great to have you back. How are you today? I am alive and well, and it's a difficult topic. I just want to acknowledge, even to say the word suicide, and 
it's not a topic I thought I was going to ever write about until I saw what was going on. Yes. What are your thoughts? Because that's been in the news quite a bit lately, suicide rates, and especially when you consider these statistics on younger Americans. My heavens, it's horrible. It is. And it's, it's another one that's difficult to look at the reality of it. But right now, about age 12, Janet, to age 17, that age range, uh, suicide is the second leading cause of death. Really? And so that are young people. So they're, they're at high risk. Last uh, year, the whole virtual school thing failed terribly. Uh, we had the highest academic failure ever. So... We've got kids that didn't do well academically. They were isolated, and all the social rules have changed. And okay. so it's been a very confusing time for our youth. Plus, addiction addiction is dropping to younger ages, and we need to look at that. That's interesting. Now, when you say that suicide became the second leading cause of death among ages 12 to 17, what was it before? Was it fifth, sixth? I mean, how far down was it prior to the pandemic? Well, I'd have to double check, but it was nowhere near the top. It's it's not an age group we were concerned about as it relates to suicide. Um, But as social media uh, really grew as kind of the primary connector or false connector for our youth, we began to see a pattern of suicide attempts. Uh, We began to see, boy, how is social media influencing this? And for some, you know, there can be cyberbullying, betrayal. There's a lot that's wrapped into what's happening to kids and social media. Right. Well, for parents, just uh, to stay on this for a moment, when you're looking at your child who might be between the ages of 12 and 17, what do you do to mitigate that? You might not even recognize that your child is feeling sad or feeling bullied or what have you. How in the world do you navigate that? And it's a it's an interesting age to try to navigate anyway. Yes, <laughs> because uh, you know the kids. Uh, a lot of times uh, they give one word answers. How are you today? Fine. Um, how was school? Fine. <laughs> so yes. It's, to engage them, you know, for a parent, you know, times can be really tricky. Yeah. But here's a few things to look for. Um, did they disconnect from their normal peer group? Uh, Socially, do you see them 100% of the time walking around with earbuds and, and they're disconnecting from you and family where usually there would be a connection? Uh, are they so isolating that they're, you know, not leaving the room? Do we see maybe some hygiene issues that uh, they're not taking good care of their hygiene, things that they normally cared about? You're not seeing that. Um, and are they potentially... Uh, really struggling in school or academic, uh, socially. We just start to add up the points of the struggle. Uh, what's so important is we keep the communication going on our part. Okay. That's good. Those so, are all good things to look for. Because, I mean, yeah. some of that is normal teen behavior, I think, at times. But when you're putting it all together, it can be um, something that you can really pay attention to and see that there's a bigger problem. And this is where you kind of talk about the importance of the family and people who are close to not just a child, but close to anybody who might be considering suicide. How important is it for multiple people to maybe be in the loop and paying attention to these things? You know, we really do want multiple people. This is uh, for one person to look at this or one person, a parent or a loved one, to kind of be carrying the whole thing and not talking about it. 
I think that's where we potentially could have regret. Mm. So we want to engage others. Plus, it's really important that we, at some point, ask, have you ever thought of harming yourself? Or um, Tell me what's going on. Have you ever thought about uh, killing yourself? To have those, when things get severe, to have those conversations actually could be a part of throwing them a life ring. Really important. Bringing up suicide does not give them ideas. Um, but sometimes opening up that door uh, is very important because now we can start to get maybe some help that may be needed. Uh, so pray. For, there's a lot of prayer for wisdom here, okay. uh, praying for wisdom. Uh, but don't be afraid to speak up. Well, that's excellent. Who is most at risk? I mean, we're talking about younger Americans because of the CDC numbers, but overall, who is at the most risk for suicide statistically? Well, we know there's another age group that we're very concerned about, and it happens to be men approximately age 50 and above. Hmm. So we're seeing uh, more men uh, in this age category who are um, taking their lives. And it is Maybe uh, some things that we've all been through the last couple of years, uh, maybe feeling like a failure, and I can't take it anymore. So the burdens feel so great that it kind of moves a person over to that uh, despair. And when you feel despair is when you feel like, I don't have any options. Mm-hmm. And we lose our ability to think clearly. Uh, we become very irrational. We also know that um, alcohol consumption is way up in this uh, age category. So uh, we've seen and we've seen here at the center uh, quite a few folks coming in who were working from home and they started drinking during the workday. I think of a situation with some IT professionals. You know, that, well, I started drinking about 4 o'clock, and then later, as time went along, well, I started drinking around 1 in the afternoon. Mm. And so basically working from home and, and drinking. Um, so alcohol, uh, alcohol sales are at all-time highs, so alcohol consumption is very high. And this is something we're concerned about, how that factors into this feeling of despair. Oh, that's terrible. Do most people, if you, I don't know what the info says about this or the research says about this, but I'm just curious. When you're talking about being worried about somebody who might be suicidal and just being honest and saying, have you ever thought about harming yourself? Do you have any suicidal thoughts? Is it the case that people who are feeling suicidal will normally admit it, or do they try to hide it? What is the normal response or the typical response from somebody? Do they usually want to talk about suicide, is, I guess, my basic question. They usually want to talk about the, the pain, and there's times where uh, a person may respond, and, and usually they do respond in, in a direction that allows us to continue the conversation. So they may say, yeah, I'm just really afraid about what I'm going to do. Mm. And then I'm, I'm going to ask, well, what are you thinking about doing? And uh, thought about harming herself. So we really want to begin that dialogue. Now, it's so important that when we uh, see the conversation going that way, we're going to also say, hey, I, I want to be a part of, of getting you some help. Can I do that for you? Yeah. And this is where we want to involve others. Yeah. Um, and we're going to ask for, for some time. Um, let me have a, a day here. Would that be all right with you? Will you keep yourself safe? I'm, I, we're going to work on getting some help. And, and really getting their agreement. Um, 
most of the time this this kind of dialogue is really important and and people who are struggling will usually give you time. Well, that's good to know, because for a lot of people, they think that this is the untouchable subject, even if they have suspicions that somebody might be on the verge. They don't want to make it worse by talking about it. But you've given some really good tips here. We're going to dive into more of them when we come back from the break. So much to live for the book by Dr. Gregory Jantz, who's with us. And we'll come back after this. For those of us who live in America, it may be hard to believe, but there are people in the country of Lebanon who have never heard about Jesus. That's exactly why Heart for Lebanon is there, working in the nation that's home to more than two million Syrian refugee families who have arrived there to escape civil war and terrorism. But every day, Heart for Lebanon is there, reaching out to these needy families in Jesus' name, telling them about him and providing food, Christian education, and survival essentials. And the Lord is changing their lives. Let me tell you about one of those refugees, Hanifa, who is 10 years old. She lost her mother when she was just a toddler, but Heart for Lebanon met her as they were delivering food portions to her family. With no opportunity for formal education, Hanifa wakes her father up early in the morning when Heart for Lebanon's educational fun truck is scheduled to arrive. Recently, during a skit about God's love, Hanifa placed her faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. And now, because her father is illiterate, she's reading the Bible to him each evening. This family, although currently living in very tough times, is slowly starting to realize the hope that only comes through Jesus Christ and the hope that only reaches them because people like you give to get the gospel to them. Your single investment of just $116 helps someone like Hanifa and her family with supplies needed to survive the next four months and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. Perhaps you could help a family like this for an entire year by joining our Hope Provider team at just $29 a month. Whatever you can do, please call now, 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner to click at JanetMefford.com. These families need immediate help. More than that, they need Jesus and they need you. Please call now. The number is 888-247-5499. That number again, 888-247-5499. Thank you and God bless you for your generosity. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Dr. Gregory Jantz is joining us, founder of the Center, A Place of Hope, and his book is called So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. One of the things you also tackle in the book, Greg, is some of the myths and the misconceptions people have about suicide. Normally, it's not always mental illness, mental illness driving this. Is that correct? Right. So we don't think in terms of, oh, this person is, is mentally ill, but we may want to look at this in a little different light that this person uh, probably has become overwhelmed. The coping mechanisms they've had aren't working. They probably feel very disconnected. And then here's what's really important. They probably feel really unlovable or unworthy. And if they're struggling in a relationship with God, they may feel like, well, God couldn't even love me. Mm. And so when you feel like you're unlovable, you end up feeling like you don't have any value. And it's like, and then there's apathy. Oh, I don't care about my life. I don't care about living because it really doesn't matter. (laughs) 
And we're seeing way too many folks kind of in that apathy and that despair about their future. Right. Is it the case, I've heard it said a number of times throughout the years, that it isn't that people want to die, it's that they don't want to feel what they're feeling in terms of their pain. Is that typical that most of them really don't want to die, would really appreciate somebody coming along and trying to get them help? Yes. And that's so well said, Janet. Thank you. Because one of the things that they do is, I can't tolerate this pain anymore. I don't see any other options. Um, most of the time, a person that ends up suicidal, and uh, right now it, 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 it's about every 11 to 13 seconds, somebody in our country takes their life. Uh, so uh, it's, it's happening all the time. And we all know maybe somebody or have a family member or have a, a friend or a loved one. So we've, most of us have been touched by knowing somebody who's committed suicide. Yes. And the ripple effect of that is very traumatic. So, but a person does, they want relief. They, um, they can't handle it anymore. They lose that rational thinking. And if we add in alcohol or drugs, uh, we increase the probability that they're going to act on something. Boy, okay, so when you're talking about red flags, you have a section in your book on the red flags to watch for. Some people may know some of some of these, but what would be the most important red flags to keep an eye on in general for someone who might be considering committing suicide? Well, there's one red flag we probably need to mention for a person who's really been contemplating suicide um, and they make that decision. And, and you've seen them struggle and struggle and struggle um, maybe with depression, or and now all of a sudden they seem like they're okay. Right. And and they seem like almost like on borderline joyful. And you're like, what just happened? Yeah. And so often when a person, as odd as it sounds, but when a person makes a decision to take their life, there is a relief. They have a plan, and. Uh, they're not telling us, of course, um, but, and they seem like uh, they're relieved. And we may misinterpret that, that everything's okay. Right. Right. Is there an easy way or a way at all to distinguish between the relief that they've decided to kill themselves and relief that they feel better? How do you even tell? Yeah, I think the relief when they make the decision, uh, we see it seems pretty drastic. Hmm. It's like all of a sudden they seem like, Whoa, what happened? They're okay. Yeah. And they're not. Um, as a person really is getting better, it's a more gradual process usually. Uh, we, they may feel some relief because uh, they're talking about it. Um, there's somebody helping them. They're getting to maybe some of the core issues. They may be dealing with some of the trauma that brought them there. Uh, and so there may be that relief. But that, that's usually more gradual because a person doesn't just suddenly feel like everything's okay. <laughs> yes, that's good advice. Actually, that's very good advice. The suddenness versus the gradual healing. What about the, really the downward spiral? That's what you call it in the book of suicide, how it plays out. You talk about issues like the person feeling disappointment and discouragement. In the later stages, it turns to things like depression and despair. Is there any point in that process, Greg, where 
it's too late to intervene and too late to save someone's life. That sounds kind of cold, but just out of curiosity is, should you catch it? You know, the earlier you catch it, the better, obviously. But what about in those later stages? Is it harder to turn that person back from what he's considering doing? In the later stages where they've done a lot of contemplation, um, they're probably spending a lot of time in contemplation because it's really not the decision they want to make. Hmm. Maybe they're deep into thinking it. Um, maybe they're, they're trying to figure out how would I do it. Um, but they really, they really don't want to do it. Yes. Um, people who have survived a suicide attempt will describe that. Um, I didn't know what else to do. And, and most of them know, I know this isn't the answer, but I'm so overwhelmed, I don't know what else to do. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's where you get so disconnected from uh, reality. It's never too late to save a life. And really, um, it was some situations that I saw that were so, so caught my attention and just so spoke to me that I go, we need to, we have the capacity to save some lives. And uh, I want to get the word out that, well, there's hope, but you've got to allow us time, give us the time we need to help you and put together a hope plan, so okay. to speak. Okay. That's important. I like, too, that you have within the chapter here on A Descent into Darkness, you talk about the seven powerful promises to battle the downward spiral. And there are seven scriptural promises here that you offer. One um, one of my favorite verses, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares yeah. for you. You know, scripture can cut through the heart in a way that mere talking can't. As Christians, when we're dealing with somebody who might be considering suicide, how do you take the Word of God and apply it to that person's life in an effective way? Well, we, and that's exactly what we want to do. Uh, and so we're going to, number one, pray for wisdom and pray that you will give words that represent truth and comfort. So when a person feels um, like they're suicidal, they don't, we don't want to be preaching to them, but we want to give them the truth of God's Word. And this is where oftentimes we're asking uh, for some time. We're asking, um, can I um, help and and explain some of this and spend some time with you? So we're always looking to ask them for time so there can be a revelation of truth. We also, and and my position is, I'm going to pray, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, to work in their lives so they're receptive, so that they're receptive to new information and really receptive to God working in their life. That's cool. uh, so it's, it's a balance between, we, we can't be too pushy because they go, I already know all that. Mm, right, <laughs> so, right. And so, but we want to speak truth, and the truth of God's Word is powerful. Yeah. And uh, that can be an anchor of hope. Yes. Well, to know that God cares about you and God cares about your life, you matter to him. You don't just matter to the people around you. I would imagine there are for a lot of people, they've never heard that before. There are plenty of people out there who've never heard the gospel and have never read the Bible. That would be an encouragement to say the one who made you doesn't want you to do this. Don't do this. Right. 
And, you know, our theme verse, which is one of the verse uh, the seven verses of truth, our theme verse is Jeremiah 29, 11. It talks about that you have a future and a hope. In fact, when you come through our main doors, that verse is on the wall. We want everybody to know that um, there's hope and God has a plan, and we want to be a part of, of helping with that plan. But um, when you're in despair, you don't see a future with a hope. True. And that's why we do I'm going to ask that you walk through the despair, we're going to be with you, um, but that despair, um, you're going to come out on the other side of that. And I don't always know what God's going to do in their life, but it's always good. Yes, right. That's right. And, I, I, you know, you give some tips here people can read in your book about stepping in and speaking up. But one of the things that I think is so significant is being there, just being there. that The person doesn't feel alone, even if it takes a while to get back to, you know, coming out of the crisis and stepping toward getting well. Having somebody by your side is a big deal because for a lot of people, feeling alone is the worst. Oh, it is. And, and so to be with them and I, just physically around and be careful that we don't, we're not trying to give answers to everything. Because if you're suicidal, at times you really need somebody to listen True. and, and not to give you all the, the quick answers. You need... Uh, they have a sense that you are valued and loved and cared about. And so that listening ear is really powerful. And that's one of the things that we all can do for somebody. Excellent. Well, such good advice. So much to live for is the name of the book by my guest, Dr. Gregory Jansen. You can find out more at the website, aplaceofhope.com. Greg, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for your wisdom. I really appreciate it. Good to be with you today. All right. You take care and God bless. And God bless you too. Thanks a lot for listening to Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time.